Please turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. When my, uh, when my son was very small, he was uh, maybe just over two years old, I went out in the garage and I found him. He had gotten into my uh, collection of uh, you know, nails and screws and tools and all kinds of stuff. Well, he dug into uh, the nail bin. He found the biggest nails that I had out in the garage, and he was vainly trying to pound one of these nails uh, into a board. Uh, and this is all he had. This was the hammer he had at the time. He had this tiny little hammer, and he wasn't that big a guy, and he just didn't have the strength or the proper tool to drive it into the wood. And so, uh, you know, Dad came to the rescue. I went and got one of my bigger hammers, which, you know, is a nice parable for life. That usually solves most things. Just get a bigger hammer. And I drove the nail in for him. I want to I take this metaphor for you, make this into a metaphor. And I want you to imagine for a moment, the nail is like the righteousness of God. And we want to get this righteousness into us. But we don't have an adequate tool. In fact, I want to get this righteousness in and all I've got is my hand to drive it in. And it's painful and it's frustrating. In fact, there are times when I say, you know, I don't think I really want this righteousness in me. Oh, yes, I do. But I can't. But I want to. But it hurts. Or as Paul expresses in Romans chapter 7, who will set me free from this body of death? Are we doomed to that frustrating experience that Paul describes In Romans chapter 7, like trying to drive the nail of righteousness into ourselves, but not having an adequate tool, and actually resisting the process. Paul turns the corner at the end of Romans and he says, but thanks be to God. But thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter 8, he will tell us why is he thankful? How is it that God has given us a solution to that frustrating struggle? And the answer will be through his spirit. Romans chapter 8 is the pinnacle of the book of Romans. It's the high point. It's what Paul has been building to. And he says the spirit is the solution. 17 times in Romans chapter 8, he references the spirit of God. 30 times in Romans chapter 7, he referenced himself. And he didn't mention the spirit. And in the absence of the spirit and the presence only of himself and his own strength, he experienced frustration. Chapter 8, he turns to the spirit of God as the solution. I want you to read with me in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. He says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul uses a very specific set of Greek words to point us to the fact that he is drawing a major conclusion right now. There is therefore now. He's going to, uh, in a sense, wrap up all of this previous discussion in Romans chapter 8 and demonstrate how it is that the Spirit is the solution to all of our problems. And he restates our problem in one simple word, and that is the word condemnation. Condemnation is the problem. In Greek, that is the word katakrima. It means literally to judge down upon. It only occurs in Paul's writings, it only occurs actually in three verses. Here in chapter 8, verse 1, and in chapter 5, verses 16 and verse 18. Verse 18 of chapter 5 reads like this. Through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. And what Paul is referencing by this word is not so much the verdict or the sentence, but the consequence of the verdict. The verdict is guilty. 
The consequence is that we now labor under the law or the governing principle of sin and death in our lives. And that law of sin and death has been inextricably wrapped up in the physical members of our body. We are stuck with it. That's why there is internal battle within us. That is Romans chapter 7. If you missed our discussion of Romans 7, please go back, get online, and fill it in. Because Paul is building his argument here. And he wraps up chapter 7 in a single word, and that is condemnation. Laboring under the consequence of the death that we inherited from Adam. Which is the governing principle of sin and death in our members, in our physical body. And you know, there is absolutely nothing that we can do to overcome it or to get it out of us. Look with me in chapter 8, verse 3. It says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh... The law was the greatest revelation of the righteousness of God to that point in time. There was nothing wrong with the law. There was nothing wrong with this nail that my son was trying to drive in. The problem was with him. He didn't have the adequate tool and he didn't have the strength to do so. Paul says, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. What Paul reminds us of in Romans chapter 7 is this good thing, the law, when it gets into our hands... And we grab a hold of it rather than creating life within us. Instead, it creates death because it actually creates more sin. It provokes more sin in us. And the problem is not with the law. The problem is with us and how we respond to this righteous principle. So who will set us free from the law of sin and death that is wrapped up in our members? Paul says in verse 2, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. The solution is this. God has provided for us a new law. And he's using a turn of phrase here. Because the old law was as dead words on a page. Okay? It's just ink on a page. It's true and it was right, but it wasn't alive. And it was the governing principle. And we saw it and interacted with it because of sin dwelling in our members. It actually provoked more sin rather than creating life. Now God says, I'm going to give you a new law, a new governing principle. And it is the law of the spirit. The law of the spirit of life or the law of the spirit who gives life. A new governing principle. And what has he accomplished? Well, two things. First, he has set us free from the law of sin and death. And second, he has condemned sin In the flesh. Notice what he says at the end of verse 3. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Do you see how he turns it upside down? We were condemned. We were laboring under a burden. A governing principle. And now Jesus has turned that upside down and now sin is laboring under a burden. Now sin is the thing that is now condemned. That is, Jesus put the smack down on sin So we don't have to live under the power of sin any longer. Not only has the penalty been removed, but the power of sin can be transcended through the work of the Spirit in our lives. Now, how did this come about? Through a threefold work of Jesus Christ. First, his incarnation. Read with me again, verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own Son in the likeness of, of sinful flesh. 
Now, that does not mean that Jesus ever sinned. What it means is when he came, he took on a body exactly like ours. With with all of its weaknesses and frailties and vulnerabilities, the exact same kind of body that we have. That's what the likeness of sinful flesh means. So when Jesus fasted 40 days, he really was hungry. He really, really was hungry. And his flesh, his body screamed out, feed me, I have a need, feed me. Jesus felt the same way you would feel if you had fasted for 40 days. He was genuinely and deeply hungry and his body said, meet that need. And Jesus being God in human flesh actually had the resources in his own hands to meet his own need. And so Satan came to him and he said, use your deity. Use your divine prerogative and reach down and make the stone into bread. I know that you've done it because I saw you do it before. When Israel was wandering in the wilderness and they were hungry, you reached down, Jesus. And you made stones into bread and there was manna on the ground. You have that power. Take the power that is in your hands and meet your own need. And Jesus said, no. He said no to the flesh. You see the parallel here between Jesus and Israel. Israel had only the law and it failed. Israel was brought into the wilderness and when they were hungry, they cried out and they whined and they moaned and they complained and they they tested God and they were angry at God and they disparaged the character of God. God, you don't care about us. You can't meet our needs. You brought us here to die, Moses. That's why God has us here. Take us back to Egypt where we have plenty. Jesus walked into the wilderness And his temptation was even more severe. He hadn't eaten in a much longer time. And when his body was screaming out, he said no. And what did he rely upon? His divine capacity to make stones into bread? No. He turned to the two resources that we have available. And so he set a pattern for us that we can follow. The word of God and the spirit of God that had just come upon him in his baptism. He relied on exactly the same resources And he conquered temptation and he conquered sin and he conquered Satan. And so he created a pattern. This is how perfect humanity works. In absolute and complete dependence upon the spirit of God and the word of God saying no to sin and yes to righteousness. And next week we'll talk more about the pattern of the life of Christ. Second, through the offering of Christ. Paul reiterates this point that he has made in chapters Uh, Three and four, he says, God did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, creating a pattern for us. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That is, he propitiated the wrath of God against our sins. He accomplished both. He lived an absolutely perfect life. And then he lived or died a perfect death to remove the penalty of our sins. And having lived a perfect life and died a perfect death, God raised him from the dead, validating. God said, God saying, I accept that sacrifice for all sins, for all people, for all time. That sacrifice is adequate. God raised him from the dead, exalted him to his right hand. And because of Jesus' perfect obedience, Jesus had the privilege to inaugurate a new covenant 
and to send the gift of God, which is the Holy Spirit. The sending of the Spirit is in this sense the completion of the work of Christ. All the way back in the Old Testament, God said, I'm going to set everything right. And the way that I'm going to set it right, Abraham, is it's going to be through you. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless all nations through you. And Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that that blessing is justification by faith and the gift of the Spirit. Did Abraham understand all that? No, but it was promised all the way back in Genesis 12. I'm going to set everything right, Abraham. I'm going to do it through your seed, that is, through Jesus Christ. And he's going to bring justification by faith, and he's going to give the gift of the Spirit. And so Jesus, toward the end of his life on earth, he said to his disciples, I'm going to make you a promise. I won't leave you as orphans. I won't leave you as orphans. I won't leave you alone. I've told you I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be crucified and rejected, but I promise I won't leave you alone. I will not abandon you. A few verses later, he tells them, the way that I will come to you again is by sending my spirit. Because Jesus Christ took on flesh and bone. He took on the limitations of humanity. But he can minister his own presence through his spirit, which is everywhere with us. And so right before he was going to depart in Acts chapter 1, the disciples were confused and frustrated and they they didn't know what to do. And Jesus said, all I want you to do right now is wait. Wait for what I promised. Wait for the gift. The greatest gift that God has ever given humanity, wait for the Spirit. And the Spirit came upon them and the Spirit changed them forever. And what Paul begins to elaborate in Romans chapter 8 is the work of God's spirit ministering effectively the accomplishment of Christ on the cross to us. This morning we're going to focus upon two of those works, okay? Two of those works of the spirit. The first is regeneration. I want you to read with me in chapter 8 beginning in verse 10. Romans chapter 8, verse 10. Excuse me, verse 8. Let's start in verse 8. He says, And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Since indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is life. Because of righteousness. There are three phrases that I want you to notice here in Romans chapter 8. The first is this. Paul talks about being in the flesh as opposed to being in the spirit. Now I hate it that grammar is so important, but in Romans chapter 6 through 8, Paul's grammar is really important. And not all of your translations bring this out. New American Standard in in Romans 6 through 8 happens to bring this out very clearly. There are three prepositions that are related to being in the flesh or about the flesh or according to the flesh. Here Paul says you are not in the flesh. Instead, you are in the spirit. And what he's saying is you are believers in Christ. He's drawing a distinction between saved and unsaved. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, you are in the spirit and the spirit is in you. And that's a fact. It's a status. It's not something that can be broken or removed or replaced 
It's a fact. Now, before you knew Christ, you were in the flesh. That was your identity. He alluded to this back in chapter 7, verse 5. He says, while we were in the flesh, but now you are no longer in the flesh. You are in the spirit and the spirit is in you. That's what regeneration is all about. But notice he also says, the body is still dead. Verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. This is Romans chapter 7. The body is dead. The body is under the curse of God. The law of sin and death dwells in the members of the body. I mean, chapter 7, verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. That's what he means when he says the body is dead. I am of flesh. When you are not a Christian, you're in the flesh. Christian and non-Christian, you are of flesh. You're of flesh. This body is broken, it's weak, it's frail, it's vulnerable to sin, and wrapped up in its members is something that is always drawing you toward independence from God. Paul says, now though, there's something different about you. Though your body remains dead, yet your spirit, literally, is life. The body's still dead, but the spirit is life. This is the doctrine of regeneration. Brian read about it earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he, that is God, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Uh, In Greek, made alive together with is one word. It's It's a long verb with a prefix on it and verbs packed in together. He made you alive together with. That is regeneration. When you were born into this world, you were born in the flesh, in Adam, and your spirit was born dead, that is separated from God. And you couldn't restore that relationship. You couldn't reunite yourself to God. You couldn't revive your spirit. You still had a spirit, but it was living entirely or existing entirely independent from God. That is spiritual death. You're born dead. So he says, when we were dead in our transgressions. The moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, you're born again. Or God makes you alive together with Christ. This is what Jesus tried to explain to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But Nicodemus just couldn't understand it. Jesus said, well, you you should. You're a teacher of the law. And God talked about it back in the Old Testament. Maybe you didn't understand. He was talking about regeneration. Uh, Ezekiel had a vision. And in his vision, there was this, this valley. And in the valley, the whole valley was filled with dried up human bones. Prophets had weird visions, right? The whole valley of dried up human bones. And God said, Ezekiel, what do you think? Can these bones live? Ezekiel said, well, uh, you know, I don't want to ever say no to God. But God, you know, I've never seen anything like it before, God. I've never seen bones coming back to life. What do you say, God? That was a really good answer. I don't know. What do you say, God? How would you answer your own question? God said, well, just watch. And he takes bones, he begins to gather them up, and he binds them together with connective tissue. And then he puts skin and flesh around the bones, and then he breathes into them the breath of life, which is Spirit of God. He says, Ezekiel, do you see it? 
And Jesus says to Nicodemus, not specifically referring to Ezekiel, but he says, you know, God promised all this in the Old Testament. You, you were born once of flesh, but if you want to see the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again or born from above. That is regeneration. Let me visualize it for you. Remember last week, I gave you a, an, an image uh, at great risk that we uh, read too much into this, but a, an image of who, who we are. Okay? We are material and immaterial, that is visible and invisible, and the two, material and immaterial, are, are intertwined. You are just one person. So when we talk about the real you, the real you is you, this, okay? Material and immaterial, bound together. That is your body or your flesh and bones, as it's referred to sometimes, or the members, the particular parts of your body, your hands, your shoulders, your knees. This is your body, physical. We got that. That's simple. But the immaterial part, well, different biblical writers use different terms to help us understand how we function. They're not technical terms. And sometimes the terms overlap. But generally speaking, we have these internal functions that are going on within us. There is our heart, which is, in a sense, the control center. It intends and directs. It thinks and it wills. Sometimes the thinking is talked about separately as the mind, and sometimes the willing is talked about separately as willing or intending or wishing or accomplishing. And the conscience is that which can say, yeah, that's good, and no, that's evil. And then there is that spirit, which is unique to creatures made in the image of God. It's that capacity to have relationship with God. But when we are born, we are out of that relationship. Our spirit is is broken and separated from God. And we're told that all of our, our, our components of our being, all aspects of us have been affected by sin. That is total depravity. In other words, not we're as bad as we could be, but all of us has been affected, our bodies and our immaterial self. The members of our flesh, but also our mind, our emotions, our will, our conscience is all affected by sin. And so while I'm in the flesh, I could pick up a Bible and I could read and I could read and I could read and I could memorize and I could study, but I would never get it until the Spirit of God came. And brought it to life and made it clear. The moment that the spirit makes it clear. And I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. God's spirit inhabits me. And I inhabit Christ. And I become regenerated. That's the doctrine of regeneration. My spirit comes to life. Meaning. Not that it wasn't existent and now it exists, but now it is once again united with the Spirit of God. And so there's another voice speaking inside of me, and it's the voice of God's Spirit. And my mind can listen to the voice of God's Spirit. My heart can intend to set all of my patterns of thinking on the Spirit. My conscience can become awakened again and sensitive to the voice of the Spirit. And my will can become strong again, and I can choose for God. Why? Because the Spirit of God now dwells within me. But note, my body is still dead because of sin. Okay? The law of sin and death is still bound up in the physical members of my body, and that's why there is battle. The Spirit of God dwells in me, and that's why there is hope. Let me illustrate. 
Uh, in a few weeks, uh, we're going with some friends to Israel. And we have decided to uh, take a plane. It wasn't a difficult decision to take a plane. Um, really just seemed like the most effective way to get there, right? Uh, you know, we could take a boat, it'd take forever. Uh, could try to swim, get eaten by sharks, not that strong a swimmer. That'd take a long time too. I could try to fly, but I wasn't made for flying. I was not born to fly. God didn't create me with feathers. I, I can't fly. Why not? Because I'm bound by a law and it's called gravity, right? And, and I can try to get off the ground, but I won't stay off the ground very long. Uh, I read an article in Sports Illustrated a few years ago, and it was, uh, it was a study about how long the best basketball players, you know, when, they, when they, they go up for a slam, it seems like they stay up forever, right? They're just hanging in the air. And so they clocked them. The guys who stay up the longest, if they don't grab hold of the rim, they just go up, do their move, and come down. They're in the air about a second. It seems so much longer, especially when you see it on replay, right? Slow down. It's only a second. It's only a second. High jumpers, it's a, when they go over the bar, it's about a second. Okay? The human body cannot overcome gravity except for about a second. Unless I apply some different laws, the laws of aerodynamics. So I get on that plane and the laws of aerodynamics transcend the laws of gravity. Is the law of gravity still in place? Absolutely. And I can test that. I can open the emergency hatch and step out. And as soon as I do that, I was telling Tristy this illustration last night. She goes, oh, don't say that. I don't, I don't think about it. You know, I'd, I'd make a splash. I mean, gravity would take over again. Why? Because gravity still applies to me. But as long as I'm in the plane, I'm experiencing a transcendent law that is laws of thermodynamics. The law of sin and death is still bound up in your members. But the law of the spirit is transcendent. And while I am living according to the law of the spirit, this broken human body can experience life, the life that the spirit gives. So the point of regeneration is not simply to get us out of hell, but to change us so that we would live a transcendent life. That's the second work of the Spirit. The Spirit is now, present tense, enabling us as we follow him. I want you to turn back with me to the book of Romans again in verse 4. So let's read verse 3 again. Romans 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, all that it had to work with, it's a good law, it's a righteous law, but all that it's got to work with is this broken down body. What the law could not do, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Notice this phrase. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Jesus died not just to get us out of hell, but to transform us. And to make us like God, to make us genuinely righteous people. There's a beautiful phrase in an old hymn that I love. It says, uh, he breaks the power of canceled sin. Okay, that's great theology. He breaks the power, present tense, of canceled sin. 
The debt of sin was canceled on the cross. And through the Spirit ministering the presence of Christ now in my life, he is breaking the power of canceled sin. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That word uh, is dikaioma. It's, it's referring to real righteousness. Okay, What the law actually intended. The actual righteousness that the law intended. What is that? What is real righteousness? I want you to turn back to Romans chapter 13 and verse 8. As Jesus was giving final instructions to his disciples, getting them prepared for his departure, he said, before I leave, I want to give you another commandment. And it's really not a new commandment. It's kind of the same old commandment, but I want to remind you of the most important commandment. Could you just do this for me? Could you just love one another? He had been with them a long time, three years. He had lived with these 12 men. And what he had seen is that they didn't love one another. And so he says, this is what I want. You know, this is how all men will know that you are my disciples, that you're my followers, that you are like me. Let me wrap it all up for you. Let me, let me make the law simple. Just love one another, boys. Could you do that? Romans chapter 13, verse 8, Paul says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this is contained in the law. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet And if there's any other commandment, really it's summed up in one saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Sometimes with uh, my kids, as I'm driving away from the house, I will say to them, love one another. (laughs) Very biblical house. And so, you know, I say, just, you know, make your mom's life good today. Would you love one another? Just love one another. Have I been with you so long? Love one another. You know, in most days, my hope is I'm thinking, just don't be mean to one another, right? <laughs> Let's go stage one. And then, you know, but then I say, stage one, just maybe, maybe just say nothing to each other today. Maybe, you know, that, that'll be, you can give your mom peace. You know, and then stage two, if we can get to this level of maturity where you're, you're saying kind words and you're doing kind things, I, oh, that would be wonderful. But what I really want is for us to get to stage three where you do kind things and you say kind words because you want to, not because I told you to but because you genuinely love one another. And then I won't have to leave you with any other laws. Love one another. A couple weeks ago, I had somebody come up after Romans 7 and say, okay, okay, I got it. We're not under the law, but which laws do we have to obey? What what does that mean? Because we're not writing off the whole thing, are we? Which laws specifically... Do I still have to obey? And here's the answer. None of them. And all of them. (laughs) Right? Certainly, we don't have to obey the sacrificial laws. Why? Because they have been fulfilled in Christ. There's no reason. There is no more sacrifice for sin. I don't have to obey the civil laws because we're not the nation of Israel. That takes care of a big chunk. 
But what of the moral laws? Paul and Jesus say, well, just love one another. Okay, first, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that takes care of the first five commandments. You won't be having any other gods before God if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, okay, there, that's the first five. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't steal from him. You won't lie about him. You won't covet his stuff. That's the second five commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You won't have to obey any of the laws, but you'll be obeying all of the laws. You will be genuinely righteous. This is what Jesus is driving at in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't, don't lust. This is the righteous requirement of the law. Don't even lust. You've heard, do not murder. But I say, don't, don't even hate. Don't become angry. Always forgive. Even those who are uh, mean to you and, and abuse you, pray for them and seek their best. Forgive, forgive, forgive. That's love for your neighbor. Okay, that's genuine righteousness. That's what God wants to accomplish in our lives. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love is character change. And when I'm loving, I am fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. Man, that's great. How? Right? That, that question come to your mind? That's, that's attractive. That's appealing. I, I think when people were listening to the Sermon on the Mount, they said, yeah, that's what I really, really want. But how do I drive that nail in? How do I get that kind of righteousness in me? Read with me again. Chapter 8, verse 4. Paul says, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. Why? So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. Jesus says, this is the way that we obey. We walk according to the spirit. Okay, we're back to the grammar. You're not in the flesh. You're in the spirit if you're a believer. But as a believer, you can walk according to the flesh or according to the spirit. You can walk or live your life consistent with the values and principles of flesh or consistent with the values and principles of spirit. That is walk according to. Paul talks about this metaphor, same metaphor, Galatians chapter 5. He says, but I say, walk by the spirit, or as one translation says, keep in step with God's spirit. And when you are keeping in step with God's spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire or the flesh wages war against the spirit and the spirit is waging war against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law because you're fulfilling the law by following the spirit of God. And when you're following the spirit of God, it becomes obvious in your life. He goes on and he says, the deeds of the flesh, that is what you can pull off, are evident their immorality, impurity, sensuality, greed, etc. But the fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit can produce in you is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, a little bit of irony, against such things there is no law. That's real righteousness. How is it achieved? By walking according to the Spirit. How do I walk 
Paul, how, how do I walk? How do I live differently? Read with me chapter 8, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Believers, if you are setting your minds according to the flesh, you'll experience death. Because the mindset of the flesh is always death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. These are two competing uh, mindsets, we could say. Paul uses a particular Greek word, he uses it four times in these three verses. It, it, it has two connotations. The first is a preoccupation, an obsession, or a dedication, an orientation in life. Okay, what I'm actively thinking about and believing is my mindset. Okay? Second connotation is this. My worldview, that which is created from my preoccupations. That is, what I come to believe is true or valuable or enduring. If I'm constantly meditating upon, thinking upon, uh, letting my mind obsess upon the things of the flesh, my worldview will be shaped by the flesh. If I'm meditating upon the things of the spirit, my mindset, my orientation will be shaped by the things of the spirit and I will have a totally different worldview. Okay, so there are two, then, mindsets. One of the spirit, the truths and values revealed in God's word. The second mindset or orientation, and that brings life and peace. The second mindset or orientation is the mindset of the flesh, the truths and values that characterize this fallen world, which results in death. Okay, not enjoying intimacy and fellowship with God. And as a believer in Jesus Christ... I will walk according to or be guided by one of these two mindsets. And if I'm actively, moment by moment, day by day, setting my mind upon things of the flesh, it'll warp my whole worldview. And when temptation hits me, it will seem as if it is impossible to say no. On the other hand, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, if therefore you've been raised up with Christ... That's Romans 6. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Same word. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. He's not saying never think about earthly things. Never think about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear or your house or your job. He's not saying that. He's saying don't let those things be your obsession. Be obsessed with the things above. The truth of God's word, the gospel, the kingdom of God, the gospel going out, people who last forever. Let those things be your obsession so they, they influence and inform and shape your worldview. Then when temptation comes, you will be able to resist because you will say, those things are dead and dying and do not last. These things are eternal and last forever. I want these things. Paul describes this, or John describes this, 1 John chapter 2, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. These are two competing loves. You cannot love both things at the same time. You cannot. Because all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, that is wanting possessions, the boastful pride of life, wanting prestige and honor, 
These things are not from the Father, but they are from the world. And if I set my mind on those things, they'll shape my worldview, and I will want those things. And when I'm tempted by those things, I will say yes. But when I realize the world is passing away, and also it's lust, and I'm setting my mind upon things that last forever, those temptations hit me, and I can say no. And let me give you one illustration. Turn with me to 1 Timothy Chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6. Verse 17. 1 Timothy 6, 17. Paul writes, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is really life. Question for you. Is wealth good or evil? Neither. That's right. It's neither good nor evil. Some of the richest people that you see in the Bible were very godly. Abraham was was really rich and very godly. Job was very rich and very godly. David was very rich, very godly. Uh, Some of the godliest people were also very poor. Elijah lived off the good graces of a widow. He lived in a little corner room on top of her house and ate whatever she was able to feed him. He may have had a home, but he could never go back to it or he would have gotten killed by Ahab and Jezebel. He was very, very poor. John, the apostle, died on the island of Patmos. He died on a rocky outcropping after having been boiled in oil. He died penniless. He had nothing. There were godly people who were very rich. There were also some nasty people who were rich and some nasty people who were poor. Wealth is not the issue. What is the issue is the orientation or the mindset that I have toward wealth. For example... The mindset of the spirit toward wealth tells me this. Everything I have is a gift from God. And why did he give me that gift? 1 Timothy 6 says, God has given us all things richly to enjoy. God has given me some measure of wealth to, to enjoy. But he's also given me wealth to share. And it's not my wealth, it's his. So it's a stewardship. I don't, I don't own it. It's It's his. And if I invest it wisely, I can actually invest it in eternity. It's fleeting. It's not lasting. It's going to pass. But I can invest in the gospel. I can invest in the kingdom of God. I can give to those who are poor and needy. And I can store up for myself in the future in heaven a foundation for that which is life indeed that really lasts. Something that's real and enduring forever. And so a a mindset that is spiritual, godly toward wealth tells me it's not mine, but I can enjoy it when I have freedom to enjoy it and I can share it and give to others. So back to our question about the law for a moment. Should we tithe? The law says tithe. Should we give 10%? The answer is no, at least 11. I'm kidding. No, I don't care if you give 10. I don't care if you give 11. It's irrelevant. Paul says, God loves what? A cheerful giver. 
God's not worried about 10% or 11%. He wants us to give cheerfully. He wants us to give sacrificially. He wants us to give and just enjoy getting to give. Not because we have to, but because God's given us this wonderful stewardship and we get to, and we get to express our love for God and our love for things that last forever by the way that we give to others. That's the mindset of the spirit. The mindset of the flesh says, "Uh uh-uh, I earned it so I can use it however I want to use it. It's mine. As it says in the prophets, my strong arm created this wealth. And wealth is a way that I can exercise power. And so I will use my wealth to exercise power. I don't trust God. So I can't give. Wealth is my security. And so I will hoard it. Wealth is a demonstration of my value. And so I will spend it in ways that others see how valuable I am as a person. See, the issue is not wealth. A person might have it and use it in a variety of ways all that are ways of the world and of the flesh. And this principle applies to everything in our lives. Our mindset or our orientation toward wealth, toward our jobs, toward our bodies, toward suffering. When we have the mindset of the Spirit, we're walking in step with the Spirit. And we love the things that last forever. Next week, what we'll talk about is how is it that the Spirit can shape our minds and move us from a mindset of the flesh into a mindset of the Spirit. And then in two weeks, we'll talk about a third work of the Spirit that is the work of redeeming our bodies. This body that is inhabited by the law of sin and of death creates this struggle constantly within us. Well, someday it is the Spirit of God who will resurrect and redeem this body and give us a new one, a glorified body. And then the struggle will end. And that's ultimately the hope that we have. That's why we do battle now. But let me leave you with a couple of, of lessons Uh, Can you give me the the last slide? Take me all the way to the last slide. Uh, Two lessons I want to point out here. The first is this. Uh, A believer never has to say yes to sin. You you never have to say yes. When when we sin, it's because we choose to sin. And we need to own up to that. There is no temptation that has overtaken us, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful with the temptation. He will also provide the way of escape so that we can endure, we can bear up under that temptation. That's a fact. And we need to, we need to, we need to deal with that and, and say, okay, I got it, I own it. God's spirit has empowered me to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Uh, second, uh, real righteousness comes through a mindset on the spirit or the mindset of the spirit. Okay? An obsession with the things that last forever and a worldview shaped by that. This is your assignment then this week. I want you to think. And then I want you to watch yourself thinking. Okay, you're going to think this week. But for most of us, we go through our entire week and we haven't thought about what we were thinking about. We, do, we just did it. We just let our minds run and race and they did whatever they wanted to. I want you to have a week of self-awareness. Okay? This is your week of self-awareness. You might want to take out a journal 
Because that'll force you to stop and say, now what was I just thinking about? And I want you to, to ponder for a moment what you were just setting your mind upon. Is it true? Or is it a lie? Is it really valuable and important and enduring? Is it eternal or is it temporal? What, what is occupying my mindset, my thoughts, day in and day out, moment by moment? I want you to ask God's spirit to make it really clear. And we're going to take that next week. And we're going to ask God's spirit to instruct us through Romans 8. And take our, our mindset of the flesh and reshape it and replace it with the mindset of the spirit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we can, in fact, know life and peace. I thank you, Father, that uh, you have revealed it to us. And I I pray that uh, we would, through the power of your spirit, understand these principles that Paul has laid out for us in Romans chapter 8. I pray, Father, that you would uh, excite our hearts to become really righteous. Not simply an an external form, not, not simply conforming our lives to a list of external standards, but becoming people who genuinely love you more than we love anything else and who genuinely love others more than we love ourselves. Thank you, Father, for that hope. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week thinking.